A lot of stuff going on today. We have, uh, in a few hours, English Town tracting. Anybody that's really adventurous to go do that after this. And then later this afternoon, we have our basketball uh, going on. I know Ray's ready to lace up. I know he's, he's going to cross somebody up and break some ankles. All right. Uh, but anyway, um, we, are, we are making a case here for the King James Bible. Uh, and we're using these letters ugh, to help us remember it in a simple way. We're using these letters KJB, right? Uh, not, not KGB, KJB, all right? Um, that's what I want. So I just want to make it clear, we're not defending the Bible. Right? We're just giving a simple explanation as how you can contend for your Bible. Spurgeon said this, which I think is a great quote. He said, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself, and the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. So in other words, the best thing to do with the Bible is to just get it out there. You know, get it into your family, get it into your heart, get it into your community. Right? The Bible doesn't need to be defended, but to help you minister to others, help you disciple others, help bolster your own faith, we remember KJB so we have some own edification. So let's just do a quick review. All right, what did our K stand for? K is for kept. Very good. You get a gold star. All right. All right. Uh, J was for? Oh, don't swear on me now. Yes. All right. So we said that the first thing to remember when contending for the Bible is that God promised to keep his words. Where are they? Do you remember the memory verse or the key verse that goes with that? What verse really says that the Lord is going to keep his words for every generation? Psalm 12, right? Six and seven. And then we said that Jesus, God's word should give Jesus Christ the preeminence in all things. Does yours, right? That's the question. And B is for beginning. B is for beginning. And uh, author Thomas Carlyle said, in every phenomenon, the beginning remains always the most notable moment. In other words, you could tell a lot about a person a movement, or even a Bible by how it starts. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 to 18, Jesus Christ is going to speak about trees. He says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. The root tells you a lot about the tree and the fruit it bears. And every, this is one of your notes, every Bible has a beginning, a root, in the form of manuscripts. Manuscripts. There are approximately 5,300 manuscripts of the New Testament in existence today, or they use the word extant, that they are available. 
Now that breaks down into two basic classes. If you really study this further, you'd find there's three, but two are the main ones. You have what's called the majority text, the majority text, which is also called the Textus Receptus, or the Syrian text. This was compiled by a man by the name of Erasmus, E-R-A-S-M-U-S, Desiderius Erasmus, in 1516. And the readings from the Textus Receptus are supported by 95% of manuscripts. In other words, 95% of the literature out there that we have of the Bible supports the Textus Receptus and corroborates the Textus Receptus. The majority text is the basis for the King James Bible. The majority text is the basis of the King James Bible. That's the root, that's the tree, that's the family of manuscripts from which your King James Bible descends and was translated from. So that's one family, that's one root, that's one tree. The other tree we're going to talk about is called the minority text. The minority text. This is also called the Alexandrian text. The critical text. This is going to only agree with 5% of the manuscripts out there. 5%. That's why it's called the minority text. So most of the manuscripts disagree with these readings. 5%, the minority text. This is the basis. Uh, actually, I'll give you the next. There's two major codices. I'm throwing out a lot of words, I know. But one is called, um, I should be writing it, Vaticanus, right? Vaticanus, which is called Codex B, Vaticanus, named after the Vatican. In 1481, the Vatican mysteriously said, oh, we have the Bible. Gee, thanks. <laughs> so you got the minority text is mainly composed of Vaticanus. That's called Codex B. And then Sinaiticus which is called Codex LF. They make up these words to sound smart and justify their paychecks, all right? Um, this was found by, by, the by a man by the name of Tischendorf in a garbage can outside a monastery in Mount Sinai in 1844. They were burning it for kindling and Tischendorf. That's why it's called Sinaiticus, because it was found near Mount Sinai. Interesting, that's where you found it in the garbage. I think that's where it should have stayed. <laughs> and uh, these two codices really make up the minority text, or the bulk of the minority text. I'm giving you some simplifications here for just clarity's sake. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Right. Now the Bible says this. <clears throat> Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Right. Now here's where a study of the King James Bible often goes sideways where it gets too intellectual. If the Bible is our final authority, right? Amen? Amen? If the Bible is our final authority, then the Bible should be the litmus test for these trees. If we're going to hold up the minority text, and I'm just going to erase this, if we're going to hold up the two trees, right? The majority text... and the minority text, 
I know this angle is very bad for you, but it's for the camera. Are you guys okay if it's like that? All right. All right. Um, then we're going to prove these trees by the Bible. Because what happens is a lot of times Christians get caught up in a lot of heady arguments about minuscules and fragments and P-175 and like all these different, the Peshito, the old Latin, all this stuff that one, you're not going to remember in the heat of battle. And two, it's just all intellectual. And it just makes you look smart. Make, oh, I know so much about the Bible. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to prove these things by the Bible. We're going to hold up these two trees and let the Bible prove which one should be the tree whose fruit a Christian is eating from. Because the Bible will define it for us. The Bible will prove all things. So we're going to start at the beginning, which is a very good place to start, especially when you want to see what fruit you should be eating. Okay, so let's jump in. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Let's start with the minority text. So we're just going to see what the Bible says about the minority text. And that'll show you, should you be eating that fruit. So we said the minority text is also called the Alexandrian text because it comes from Alexandria, Egypt. That's where it's descended from. Now, the world celebrates the school at Alexandria. There was a great philosophical school after the time of Christ at Alexandria, Egypt, and it's renowned. Listen to this blurb from Wikipedia. Where they're gonna, listen to what they say about this school. Quote, under the leadership of the scholar Pantaneus, the school of Alexandria became an important institution of religious learning mm, where students were taught by scholars such as Athenagoras, Clement, you'll learn that name, Didymus, and the great Origen, who is considered the father of theology and who is also active in the field of commentary and comparative biblical studies. Many scholars, such as Jerome, visited the School of Alexandria to exchange ideas and to communicate directly with its scholars. You study anything about church history, Origen is held up like he's the second coming of Christ. Origen was a, was a heretic and is probably burning in hell. Heretic believed in transmigration of the soul. Origen believed in Mary worship. Origen believed in uh, uh, purgatory. Origen believed in like universal salvation at the end of time. Origen castrated himself because that would make him closer to God because he misread a verse out of Matthew 19 about people being made eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake. That's Origen. The world holds him up because he did martyr. He did die for his faith, so to speak, but he was a heretic of the highest order. And he's a big responsibility for this minority text. So let's hold it up. Let's see what the Bible has to say. That's what Wikipedia says. The world says, hooray. What does God say about Egypt? Genesis 12, 10. Here's your first mention of Egypt. Can you please tell me the direction Abraham, Abram is going in Genesis 12, 10? What direction is he going when he goes to Egypt? He's going down. Please notice that the first mention of Egypt involves Abram, the man God chose, going down. You're always going down when you're going to Egypt. That's not by accident, okay? Let's keep going. Let's look at Genesis 16. Now, in Genesis 16, in verse 1, we find out that after Abram went down to Egypt, he brought somebody back with him. He brought back a handmaiden named Hagar. And Hagar 
If you look at verses 2 to 4, I'm not going to read all these, but verses 2 to 4, you find out that Sarah, Sarai, tells Abram to go into Hagar and have a child, and Abram turned to Egypt rather than trust God's words. Rather than trust God's promise that he'd bring forth a seed, Abram turned to Egypt. Now look at verse 11 about that seed. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, meaning Hagar, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. Um, Mark, just... The sheets are in there, okay? So that guy... That offspring of Abram and Hagar has plagued Abraham's descendants unto this day. You're living it. You're watching it on the news. That's Abram's descendants with with Hagar. In Islam, if you know anything about Islam, Ishmael is considered the ancestor of Muhammad. And Ishmael is supposed to be Abraham's real sacrifice. And it was Ishmael who supposedly constructed the Kaaba. Does that sound like a good tree for the child of God? All right. So let's go to Exodus chapter 1. Let's look at Exodus chapter 1. Let's keep going on with Egypt now. Now, you, if you're talking to a pseudo-intellectual person that wants to talk about you know, minority readings and critical apparatuses and Nestle's Greek text, you know, they're not going to want to hear this, but this is what God's commentary is on these two trees. And that's the only thing that matters. Exodus 1, verse 13 and 14. Exodus 1, 13 and 14. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. We find out that Egypt was the nation that enslaved God's people. Egypt is the nation that enslaved God's people. Now just be rational with me. Are you sure you want a Bible whose origins have been a source of persecution, oppression, and even slavery for the people of God? So why then would you ever choose a Bible that has roots in a place that is known to subjugate the saints? I think the world's Bibles have been plaguing God's people, just like they plagued back then with Egypt. Those Egyptian Bibles are plaguing and enslaving the people of God today, putting them in bondage, to things today, which we'll talk about a little bit. Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe be to them that go down to Egypt for help. Woe be to them that go down to Egypt for help. And I think, woe be to them that go down to Egypt for a Bible. Why would I go down to Egypt for a Bible if God is always against Egypt? Right? The only time you find anything favorable about Egypt is I think in the book of Ezekiel after the Lord has come back and he talks about Egypt would be his servant because he's turned the world to him. But everything else is negative. You see, when you read your Bible, this is me off on a soapbox now, the Bible's got to be your litmus test of everything. Music, philosophy, politics. You hold everything up to the scriptures because the Bible has the answers about everything. You dig long enough, you'll find light about everything in there and it sheds Tremendous light on the Bible issue. It's not a side issue. It's in plain sight. So that's Egypt. How about Alexandria? Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 6. How about Alexandria? 
Alexandria is in Egypt. We just slammed Egypt a little bit. Let's take a few shots at Alexandria. Let's see what the Bible says about Alexandria. Now, just so you know, Alexandria was a great port city on the Mediterranean, founded by Alexander the Great, hence the title Alexandria. It was a hub, and it was a hub of religion and philosophy. It was a great city in the eyes of the world. But what does the Bible have to say about it? Well, here's your first mention of Alexandria. First mention of Alexandria is in Acts 6, 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Our first mention of the Alexandrians is that's the crowd that martyred Stephen. You got that? You read a little further? And you find in Acts chapter 7, verses 57 to 59, that crowd that he's been contending with is the crowd that eventually stones him to death. And the Bible is very explicit that it's first mention of the word Alexandrians. They're in the crowd that put the preacher to death. And it's that crowd that's been trying to silence the gospel ever since. Let's go to Acts chapter 18. I'll show you the second mention of Alexandria, or the next mention that's notable. Acts 18, look at verse 24. It's going to be talking about a guy by the name of Apollos. Right? Apollos came from Alexandria. Acts 8, 24. Acts 18, sorry, 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla, these are Paul's companions, had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly." Apollos got bad doctrine from Alexandria. Incomplete doctrine from Alexandria. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. Where did he learn all that stuff? He learned it in Alexandria, where he was born and brought up. It was a place of bad doctrine. According to Galatians 1, if he didn't get it right, he would have been accursed because he was preaching a false gospel. But he had a heart for God and he got the wrong message from Alexandria. Killer and Priscilla straightened him out, and he went on and did some great things for God. How about Acts 28? How about another mention of Alexandria in the book of Acts? How about Acts 28, verse 11? We're going to get hot and heavy in just a second. By the way, we had the youth group over last night, and we did about an hour or so of question and answers, and I, I, the teenagers are probably just like, uh, but I felt, I mean, we would have been there probably for a few more hours if I didn't cut it, because that the hum was in the room. Sometimes you're talking and you feel the hum, like the room is humming, and I felt some of them leaning in, you know, and I, we were going down deep and staying down long, and it was, it was good. I had to kind of like pull everybody else back because I was like, some of you had to go home and talk to your parents and never be allowed back here again because there's some folks that don't go to our church there, and one girl's just like this. What? I just read Genesis. I didn't see that. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So, we, so we're going to get down there in a little bit. Just uh, hopefully we'll have a hum. Hopefully you're not jaded, but they were, they were good. Acts 28.11 talks about the ship that brought Paul to his death, 11. And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria. So it's an Alexandrian ship that's providing the transportation 
to bring Paul to his death in Rome. That's very important. And Alexandria, you can't see this, I don't even know why I'm writing it here. An Alexandrian ship bringing Paul to Rome. Now let's break down the typology of that, shall we? Paul said, if you remember your reading from 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, I am a pattern, he said. I am a pattern to them who should hereafter believe on Jesus Christ. His life is a model and a prototype of what the church would be doing as a whole. What happened to Paul? He had a supernatural birth. You had a supernatural birth. He ends in an Alexandrian ship being brought back to Rome to be put to death. Here's the connection. Will these Alexandrian Bibles do the same for the church and lead the body of Christ back to the clutches of Mother Rome? And if you think I'm being hard on the Roman Catholic Church, you don't know your Bible and you don't know your heritage and you don't know your history. That is anti-Christ. That system is, I'm expecting the speaker to explode right now. That system is anti-Christ. And if you read the epistle dedicatory of your King James Bible, those King James translators knew that popish persons, quote, popish persons were against that Bible. I mentioned it last night to the youth group, and I said it nicely, don't be upset, parents. I said, they said the man of sin was the pope. It was like common knowledge that the man of sin was the pope. And I'm going to show you now how some of the stuff that's omitted from the new versions are leading the body of Christ back to the clutches of Mother Rome. Come home to Mama so she can bite your neck and suck your blood, right? I say that jokingly, but that's what she's about. No, somewhat jokingly, right? Go to Revelation 2.15. I didn't pass out the Bible, so you'll just, I mean... You could take my word on some of this, or you can come check them out yourself. All right, I might do this, though. I might do this. Let's see. Where's my NIV? Where's my not-inspired version? All right. Chris, get the not-inspired version here. Let me take that one. That's good for you. All right, let's get the... Uh, where's my not-living translation? Okay, here we go. You want to read the not-living translation, Brian? Okay. <laughs> the not-living translation. Um, um, I have an abbreviation for the Holman Christian Standard Bible, but it's not nice. So, is this my Holman? Yeah, there we go. Who wants to? You got to read. Who's? Somebody read that. Yeah, read that. And uh, yeah, how about the ESV? The especially Satanic Bible, right? Give somebody that one. All right. Because that one's that one's really pious. All right. So Revelation two fifteen says this. Okay, I'm just going to show you very briefly. You can make a whole study of this and write a book about it how new versions rooted in Alexandria are the vehicle that's leading the body of Christ back from the clutches of the harlot that many of you escaped from. And I said it last time, they want to bring the estranged brother back into the fold. You're the prodigal son, people. That's what they think of you. I've read the literature. I've contended with the Jesuits. I used to have the pamphlets. They got a whole ministry about bringing you back to Rome. I'm not exaggerating. You're the estranged brother of, of the, you're the prodigal son to them. And they're going to bring you back to Rome and reconcile you back to the father's house. Right? Revelation 2.15, look what it says here. 
Lord's talking, he says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. He says, I hate this idea of clergy and laity. I hate this idea of a religious class and a, a, a schmo class. <laughs> this idea, this idea of I'm not laity and you're not clergy. <laughs> the Bible says we're all one. But you know what a lot of new versions do? A lot of new versions, I don't know exactly which ones do or don't, they omit that part of the verse that says, which thing I hate. They omit, is it omitted in yours? Yeah, it's omitted in that especially satanic version, right? It's omitted because what does that lead us back to? That's the papacy, people. That's that priestly class. That's cardinals and bishops, right? Clergy and laity. Why would you take that out? How about James chapter 5, verse number 16? You see, when you study the changes long enough, you're not a conspiracy nut, you're, you're wise, and you see there's a trail of the serpent in it. There's a, there's, a, there's a pattern to them. James chapter 5, verse number 16. <clears throat> what does your King James Bible say you're supposed to confess to each other in James chapter 5, verse 16? Your faults. Yo, bro, I got a problem with this. I'm a little too impatient. I'm a little too covetous. I'm a little too, you know, I don't think things through. I, I, I'm, 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 I got a big mouth, whatever it is. I'm speaking about myself right now, right? Confess your faults, right? Ask for help. Pray one for another. But if you got the NIV, what's it say? James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Confess your sins. I remember being in the, in, the, in the Church of Christ before I got saved, and I'd watch the guys go up to each other and confess their sins to each other. And I was like, what? He took this kid on the side before a Sunday morning service, and he walked over here, and he whispered in his ear. I said, what just happened, John? What did, you, what did that guy just do? Oh, he had to confess a sin to me that he did this weekend with somebody. I said, what? I said, you confessed your sins to each other? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. That was what really got me sold on the King James Bible because I was weirded out by that. Like I've told you, I was weirded out by confession in the Catholic Church and then I go to this other so-called Bible church and they're confessing their sins to each other and then the Lord put it together. He said, the NIV says confess your sins. And I was like, oh, the NIV says confess your sins. That's a problem. That's a mistake. You know what that's leading to? Penance. That's bringing us back to Mother Rome. Confessing your sins to a man? Oh, Pat, you're overdoing it. You're up against the most diabolical being in the universe that even Michael the archangel would say, the Lord rebuked thee. You don't think he's subtle? How about, how about Matthew chapter 1, verse 25? Matthew 1, verse 25. You could look these up in the new versions. I don't have all of the, I don't know which ones messed them up all. Um, the next one, I will have you read some of them. Matthew 1, 25. And Mary, speaking, knew her not till she had brought forth her, what's the King James Bible say? Firstborn son. Firstborn son means there was a secondborn and a thirdborn and at least a fourthborn because Jesus mentions about three or four other brothers in Mark chapter 6 and other places in the Bible. He mentions at least six siblings who were not cousins like they try to tell us. They were brothers and sisters, right? I don't call my sister my cousin. But um, does any, of the, what are the, any new versions change it? They take the word out? Word's gone. What does it say? But he had no union with her until he gave birth to a son. To a son, right? Anybody else did it change? A son, right? What's that all about? The perpetual virginity 
of Mary. That's a Catholic doctrine. That you, you offend a Catholic more about that. You speak about Mama Mary, Mother Mary come to me, whispering words of wisdom, let it be. I mean, you talk about Mary, you might as well insult their mother. My father was, he didn't care so much about Christ, but he had statues, and Mary, he told me, was going to take him to heaven. And when he died, I tore that stuff off his wall, and I, want, I think I burned it. It drove me crazy, right? He had water from Lourdes, and he thought, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sinners, now, right? All that gas, right? All that gas. Mary right now in heaven is doing a face palm, going, Oh, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That's the only command she ever gave in the Bible. But you see... A subtle, a little change there, a little change here. Not the firstborn son, but a son. Now, here's a good one. Go to Matthew chapter 12. I want all my fake Bible people to say, why do you got to talk like that? Because they're fake Bibles. I mean, we could say that. We're among friends. I wouldn't say that on a Sunday morning as boldly, but they're fake Bibles, right? One of the young people last night that don't go to our church, he was like, what are you reading from? I said, the King James Bible. He was like, the New Living Translation? I didn't say the not living translation. I didn't get in his face. I just said, no, no, use the King James Bible. I was gracious. But among us that are supposed to know better, I'm going to kick that sacred cow all across the room and bang it all over the place because you've got to get shaken out of your religious lethargy here. Matthew 12, 4, look what it says here when Jesus is talking about the showbread. Matthew 12, 4. Jesus talked about David, right? David went in. You remember he took the bread? He talks about how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread. Right? The showbread. Question, does Jesus Christ live in the bread that we're going to break tomorrow? I think it's going to come out of Mal's oven, right? right? That's, that's as holy as it's going to get, right? Um, that's it, right? I like to throw it on the floor sometimes and step on it just to kind of remind you that it's just bread. What does it say in the NIV in Matthew 12, 4? The consecrated bread. What does it say in the not living translation? Matthew 12, 4. New living? Yeah, yeah, new living, 12, yeah. 4? Yeah, 12, 4. He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the, broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of the, bread. The sacred loaves. That always a priest are allowed to eat. That's good. How about the uh, HCB you got? How he entered into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. That's the ESV. The bre- Who's got the Holman Christian Standard Bible? What's that say? How he entered the house of God and they ate the sacred bread. The sacred. I like the especially satanic version, though. The bread of, is that a capital P? It's lowercase p. Capital P presence. The bread of the presence. You know the guys that are behind this minority text, two names that you'll learn about if you read anything called Westcott and Hort? You know, they were, they were just closet Catholics. Westcott spoke of the consecration of the host. Hort said, quote, I am a staunch sacerdotalist. A sacerdotalist is someone who believes that you need a human priest to mediate for man. Philip Schaff, who wrote the most reputable so-called history of the church, his volumes, he said, quote, 
The Lord's Supper is more than a mere commemoration celebration. And this one's going to get some of you. You heard of Francis Chan? Right? Pretty famous guy, says a lot of nice things, seems really devoted, has a huge following, nice little piece of hair growing out of his chin like this, you know, Asian guy, writes books, crazy love, you know, people have watched things. He's big in evangelical circles. He's known around the world. He's been a missionary, and I, I, I can't say that I haven't heard him say good things. But in January 2020, I don't know what got into him, but in January 2020, he said this, I remember watching this live or watching this somewhere, quote, I didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of church history, everyone saw it as the literal body and blood of Christ. And it wasn't until 500 years ago that someone popularized the thought that it's just a symbol and nothing more. For 1,500 years, it was never one guy in his pulpit being the center of the church. It was the body and blood of Christ. Heretic. 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 <gasps> he wrote crazy love. Heretic. He's a heretic for saying that. That's blasphemy. 1,500 years. The Bible says, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. He said it's a symbol. But something got into him. He might have been reading the wrong version. I think he reads the especially satanic version, perhaps. God presents Alexandria as a place where people get their heads bashed in for believing the truth, preachers get bad doctrine, and great men of God get brought to their death physically and the death of the church spiritually. And that is the source of the minority text, the Alexandrian manuscripts, that supports nearly every modern version on the market. Even readings of the New King James are influenced by the minority text. That doesn't sound like a tree whose fruit you should be eating, does it? So I'm going to kick that to the curb. And let's talk about the majority text now. Let's change gears as we finish up. All right? Let's go to Deuteronomy 26. All right? I mean, could it be any clearer for you? I mean, you could read a lot of books. The reason why I do it this way is I've read a lot of books on it. I'm reading another book on it right now uh, that Ripplinger is promoting called Concealed from Christians is a little out there, but it's a, I'm, I'm giving it a shot. But I've read, you know, Gipp's work, Ruckman's work. I've read uh, a lot of Rippling. I've read all of Ripplinger's big works. I've read a lot of books on the issue. It's all this information that, one, you don't remember, and two, it just titillates your mind. But if I could just pull out my Bible and prove all things, then I have something that's really substantial because I could always reach for my Bible, and it's the Word of God that perfects you. So I like to do it this way. And in um, the majority text originates from Antioch, Syria. So like we took a shot at Egypt, let's take some shots at Syria. It's called the traditional text, the Byzantine text, the Textus Receptus, the Syrian text. This is what underlies the King James Bible. If you look at Deuteronomy 26, verse 5, I'm not going to read it, but you can note it. Syria was the place where God chose Abram, the father of faith. That's the first mention of Syria. It's the home of Abram. Go to Genesis 24 with me, please. Genesis 24. Genesis 24. Genesis 24, if you read through Genesis 24, 
Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was 26 is not the first mention. I apologize. Just that that shows you that Syria was the place where God chose Abram. But Genesis 24 and 25 is the first mention. And it's talking about Ur of the Chaldees. That's where Abram's home was. That's where Isaac's bride was. She came from Syria. She came from that land. In fact, if you look at Genesis 24, if you just want to look at and note verses 13 to 16, you see right there in Genesis 24, 13 to 16, that Isaac's bride was found drawing water out of a Syrian well. Is that where the church finds water? Out of a Syrian well? That's a Syrian well you got right there. The bride of Christ is supposed to be getting water out of a Syrian well. That's where Isaac's bride is found. Genesis 18. Look at Genesis 18, verse 17 and 18. Genesis 18, 17 and 18. And the Lord said, Shall I hide this th- hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall become, surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That place produced a man whose seed would bless the whole world. The seed that God blessed came from Syria. Now listen, Galatians chapter 3 says that that seed was Christ. Galatians 3.16 says that that seed that came from Abraham was Christ. Syria is a good root according to the Scripture. It's a seed that God said he would bless and would bless the whole world. That making sense so far? I'm just doing a Bible study here. You could have done the same thing and saved yourself a morning to come out here, right? Luke 8, 11, Jesus says in the parable, the seed is the word of God. God's seed originated in Syria. The living word originated in Syria. Jesus Christ originated in Syria because that's where Abram was found. That's where the seed came from. Wouldn't the written word then originate in Syria? If the living word and the written word are really close, really close. In this book I'm reading, the thesis is how close the living word and the written word is, how close they are, how close your King James Bible is to your King Jesus Christ. It's an interesting thesis. I'll let you know when it's done if you should read it. But if that's the truth, then if the seed of the Savior came out of Syria, shouldn't the seed of the Scripture come out of Syria? If God chose that area as the source for a man to which he would make an everlasting promise, right? Abraham had a promise. Abraham believed God. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Why can't we trust that place as the wellspring of manuscripts for all of our promises? That's where the man of faith got a promise that he could believe. That's where the men and women of faith get the promises that we're supposed to believe out of Syria. Now, Antioch. Let's talk about Antioch a little bit. Antioch was founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals. Ironically, Antioch was also a great city that eventually and ironically rivaled Alexandria as the chief city of the Near East. It's always been about Alexandria versus Antioch. (laughs) Even historically 
and even scripturally, it's Alexandria versus Antioch. But, now watch this. Unlike Alexandria, Antioch was found on the Asian continent. Antioch is a descendant of Shem. Alexandria is the land of Ham. Now, in Genesis 9.26, the Bible says, forget about what you think, the Bible says, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. You know the word Shemitic, right? (laughs) Abraham was from Shem. God's chosen people, the Jews, were from Shem. We talk about being anti-Semitic. It's a derivation of anti-Shemitic. It means against the Shemites, against the people that came from Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Making sense so far? John 4.22, the Bible says, Jesus Christ speaking, salvation is of the Jews. God's salvation, Jesus Christ, came from Shem. Jesus was a Shemite. He wasn't a Hamite, and he wasn't a Japhethite. He wasn't white, he wasn't black, he was Arab. He was Shemitic. That's why the world hates the Shemites. They hate them today, right? Anti-Shemitic, right? Anti-Shemitic. Now go to Romans chapter 3. You say, wow, you're really reaching. Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2. What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? He said, what's the big deal about the Jews and the Shemites? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The Shemites, the Jews, had God's word committed unto them by God. That's what made them different. That's what made them special. That's what your Bible is from. Your Bible comes from that place that God blessed. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. He cursed the descendants of of this group. He blessed Shem. He said, oh, that's just Bible, man. You can't take it. Get out of the kitchen, right? That's Bible. He said, I admit, hey, God didn't say he was going to bless Japheth. He said he'd enlarge Japheth. We tried to take over the world. (laughs) But he said, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, that God would be coming through Shem. Jesus Christ was a Shemite. If the living word came through Shem, why not the written word came through Shem? Unto them were committed the oracles of God. So that's about Syria. Let's talk about Antioch a little more. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. Let's look at the first mention of Antioch. You remember the first mention of Alexandria? It was about the Alexandrians who stoned Stephen, or at least joined the party. The first mention of of Antioch is a man by the name of Nicholas, who was one of the first deacons. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas. So when we had to find some good guys, they found Nicholas. Nicholas was from Antioch, right? Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
Nicholas, one of the first deacons, who was honest and full of the Holy Ghost. They said, find you some guys that are honest and full of the Holy Spirit. And Nicholas made the cut. And he was from Antioch. And that's the first mention of Antioch in your Bible. Somebody who was honest and full of the Holy Ghost. Just like your Bible. How about Acts eleven twenty six? Acts eleven twenty six. Acts eleven twenty six. Acts eleven twenty six. And when he had found him, meaning Barnabas finding Saul, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in. Antioch, right? The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That's, that's a good designation, right? The world called you a follower of Christ the first time in Antioch. How about Acts chapter 15? How about Acts chapter 15? How about verse 35? Acts 15, 35. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord also, or with many others also. It looks like Paul the Apostle, the teacher, the minister of the Gentiles, and our pattern went to church in Antioch. Seems like Paul's home church was Antioch. You think Paul read the statement of faith? <laughs> you think Paul knew what they were about? You think Paul, who said, I'm your pattern? He said, I go to church in Antioch. Is your Bible found from Antioch? Your teaching and preaching coming from Antioch? If our spiritual roots are clearly in Antioch, shouldn't our Bible come from Antioch as well? I mean, I'm just asking it out loud. Just make that simple deduction. If it's all these good things, why wouldn't you want to take the fruit off that tree? What kind of church was Antioch? You might want to notice this, and then we'll be done. We'll take a break. What kind of church was Antioch? Please notice these seven attributes of this church according to the Scripture. Seven, if you want a heading, seven attributes of the church at Antioch. Number one, Acts 11, verse 19 to 20. Acts 11, 19 to 20. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. First thing I see is it was a preaching church. It was a preaching church. A good mark of a church is it a preaching church, right? We teach a lot, but we're supposed to preach. Through the foolishness of preaching, God saves people. He committed the truth, Titus is told, through the preaching of the word, the declaration of God's truth. We've got a lot of teachers today, right? A lot of seminars. I said this uh, Thursday night. A lot of seminars, a lot of talks, a lot of sharing, a lot of stools with clear lucite pulpits and people wearing like, you know, polo shirts, sitting on a stool somewhere, talk, giving a talk about marriage or a talk about your finances or a talk about this. Where is the straight, clear Bible preaching? Antioch was a Bible preaching church. But look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Number two, it was a, it was a witnessing church. 24 says... Uh, much people was added to the Lord, this man, Barnabas, from Antioch. It was a witnessing church. Number one, it was a preaching church. Number two, it was a witnessing church. They tried to get the gospel out like a church is supposed to. I marvel at these churches in our area that have such reach and influence, and they didn't do anything with the gospel. You run fairs, you have stores, 
and there's no gospel? There's like a little thing stuck in the corner somewhere that says, here's our church times when we meet. Where's the gospel? Man, if we had money, man, I know you're like, we'd get a building. I know, I know. But I mean, <laughs> billboards, I mean, signs. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to be on the placemats of the Park Place Diner very soon. I went to dinner there. I went to, took my kids out to lunch there and I'm staring at this placemat. I'm like, everybody's got these placemats. So I look at the bottom, there's an email address. And I, I sat there and I'm eating. I emailed the lady. The next day she gets back to me. She goes, yeah, you'll be the only church on the Park Place Diner. She said, here's the cost. It's not a bad cost. I said, I'm going to do it. Everybody sits down to have a double bacon cheeseburger. I said, you're going to see something from First Bible Church, the gospel. And I'm not going to say, come to our church. I'm going to say, are you sure you're going to heaven? Or something to get their attention. Right? A witnessing church. That's what we learned. How about 26 of Acts 11? It says... Um, and when he had found them, he brought them unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. It was, number three, a teaching church. Right? We teach the Bible. We don't just stand up there and somebody say, what's preaching? Oh, get a verse and get a fit. That's not really great. That sounds good. Some people do that. You go to some camps, and it's just like, let's turn to John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Now I'm going to make you cry. It's just like that's, and that's like the... Mark's been there, even it's just like 40 minutes of stories about somebody's dog and how they yelled at somebody, and you know, it's just like, okay, you know. But you're supposed to teach the word and preach the word. Number four, 26, they were called Christians. You know why? Because it was a serving church. Christian means follower, disciple, servant of Christ. They were following Christ. They weren't just talking the talk, they were walking the walk. How about number five? Look at verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. They were a giving church. A giving church. They said, oh man, the brethren in Judea, they're going through a dearth. They need some help. They need some money. They took up a collection. They brought it down by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. They were giving. We're supposed to be giving. If God gave to us, we should be willing to give to others. Number six, go to Acts 13. Number six, Acts 13. Look at verse two. Speaking of all these guys, verse one. Now that we're in the church, there was in Antioch, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereinto I have called them. I see number six, they were a praying church. They were busy, but they made sure they made time. It seems like they're having some kind of prayer meeting there. They're fasting. They're seeking God's face. Hey, I'm trying to follow that example, right? We, we try to pray before we get there at 6.30. Some of the guys pray on Thursday nights that can be there early. I know it's hard for people. I get it. I don't judge you for it. It's hard. Uh, we come at 10 o'clock. We pray on Sunday mornings if you can make it. Praise God. I know it's hard with kids. I get it. I'm not judging you, but we're there. We're praying. And then we set aside time on Tuesday nights. If you want to jump online from the comfort of your own home, you can leave your camera off and just eat a ding-dong while other people talk. But we have a prayer meeting online, and we just share the needs of the church, and we read a chapter of Psalms. We talk about it. We get a blessing, and we pray for 30 minutes or so, 20 minutes or so. We cover the needs of the church. We want to be a praying church. That's what Antioch was. That's what we're supposed to be. And Acts 13, last one, verse 3. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they, were, they sent them away. 
So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. It was a missionary-sending church. That's Paul and Barnabas going on their first missionary journey, sent out from Antioch. Can you please think about the fruit produced from this tree? We got sound doctrine coming from this tree. We got faithful servants coming from this tree. We got missionary activity coming from this tree. Don't you think it would be the chosen root to give us God's word? To me, it's laughable. To me, to say, well, I like the NIV because it says it's easier to read. Really? It comes from here. That's all I got to know. It comes from here. Now, they may not accept that, but that should strengthen your faith. That what root is it coming from? See, essentially, there are only two Bibles in the world. Those from Alexandria and those from Antioch. Like there's two salvations in the world. There's God's salvation, there's the devil's salvation. There's only two Bibles. There's Alexandrian Bibles and there are Antiochian Bibles. The root or beginning of anything says a lot about the fruit it produces. What does the Bible say about the beginning of yours? That's a question you have somebody open that you could talk about. Go back to Matthew 7, 18. We'll end with this and then we'll take a break. Matthew 7, 18. Matthew 7, 18. Look at it. See it? This is Jesus speaking. Maybe your words are red. That means they're doubly special, okay? A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. A corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. So how could a good Bible come from a bad tree? It's impossible. Jesus said a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. So if your Bible has the wrong root, it's bound to have the wrong fruit. I didn't say that. Jesus said it. That's the test of, of, of your Bible. What root is it from? Where does it come from? Now, I know you could read on on this. I give you books about it. I give you suggestions. You want to read more about manuscripts? It's great. You want to read the handbook of manuscript evidence? That's fantastic. You won't remember any of it five minutes after you put it down, but it'll make you feel smart for 15 minutes. But you could always reach for your Bible, reach for your concordance and say, what does God say about Antioch? What does God say about Alexandria? And you could prove all things through the scripture. And that's what it's supposed to be about, right? The scripture being the final authority, not Gip, Ripplinger, or Ruckman, but the Bible is the authority on these things. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll take a break.